Father, as we fellowship here in this world today, we are reminded of how great the fellowship will be that time when we all are together at the, uh, in the presence of the Lord. Fellowship will be far greater because there will be no masks, uh, nothing for us to uh, hide behind or no reason to hide. We can be open and above board totally with each other and in the presence of our Lord and that fellowship will be from the deepest joy within us. And we're grateful for that, that taste that we have of it even now today. Lord, we're so thankful that you walk with us, that you have promised to go with us even to the end of time and to the edges of the earth. And as we look at this passage today, we see that that promise was made even to Isaac. And we ask, Lord, as we study concerning this man's life and the events which transpired and the things that you taught him, that we will learn these lessons too, and that it will be part of the very fabric of our being to respond to the Spirit of God and to walk in a way that makes a difference in this life, that we might truly be Christian in our character, in our words, our thoughts, in every aspect of our being. We ask, Lord, that our time here this morning will be blessed by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 26, beginning at verse 18. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water, which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the, name, the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdmen, herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The well, the water, is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too. So he named it Sitna. And he moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth, for he said, At last the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Well, obviously, Isaac was quite a well digger. Moving through the valley of Gerar, which was, as we noted last week, to the east... Uh, between the city of Gerar and the city of Beersheba, or <laughs> actually there wasn't any city of Beersheba, but the site of Beersheba. Uh, he's, he's living in that area in between, and he was digging out the wells that his father Abraham had dug when he had lived there better part of a century before. And we remember the account of Abraham living there and the whole problem that was involved. And Abraham had dug wells for his animals, and for his, for his uh, entourage. And it's interesting that he did so with the blessing of the king of Gerar at that time. And so Isaac is going out, he's finding these wells, and he is digging them out. Now the Philistines had filled them in. And we think, that seems kind of silly. Somebody goes to all the work to dig a well, and you come along and you fill it in. That would seem like a foolish thing to do. But it seems that the Philistines did not want this area to be tra attractive to the, to the nomads. And so they filled the wells in so that the water would not be available to the nomads as they moved through the area. Apparently, the Philistines were not numerous enough themselves to effectively occupy the whole plain, but they coveted it. They coveted the plain. And therefore, they didn't want anybody else to occupy it, to live there, to graze animals on it, and, of course, to draw water from the well. Now, obviously, Isaac has a right to these wells because they had been dug by his father originally with the blessing of Abimelech, the prior king of the land of the Philistines there, of the city-state of Gerar. And therefore, by right of inheritance, he should have still had authority over these wells. And he could have fought for them. He could have said, look, my father dug these wells. I'm digging them out again. You leave us alone. We're going to keep these wells. And if they pressed him, he could have actually gone to the point of war. But he did not do that. As we see through this passage over and over again, he refuses to actually go to the point of strife or of battle over these wells. Now, we should 
Think about these wells just for a moment. The wells which were dug in this part of the world at that time were basically simple water, uh, water table penetration wells. They were just punched down until they reached the water table. Obviously, they would be, uh, you know, probably within 50 feet of the surface or, or less for the most part. They were percolation wells where the water just seeped in from the water table into the opening and, of course, then could be drawn up. This apparently was true not only of the wells uh, that uh, Isaac would dig, except this one we're going to note here, uh, but also it was true apparently of the wells that Abraham had dug. But in this passage, you'll notice that he digs a, a new well. He apparently goes out in, a, in another place and digs a well on his own, not just unstopping one of Abraham's well, wells, but he digs a well on his own there. And as he does so, apparently, according to this passage, he strikes an aquifer. Notice what it says in verse 19. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water. Literally, living water is what it says here in the Hebrew. A well of living water. Now, that doesn't mean that water simply produces life. There's something special about this well. And what, what we assume, of course, is this was a well with artesian flow. In other words, the water welled up within and actually flowed to the surface without having to be drawn up uh, in any means. And so this was a specially desirable well. It was a very unusual well. Artesian wells are not particularly common in that part of the world. And so this was a relatively rare one. And as a result, the Philistine herdsmen, they decide they want this well because this, you don't even have to work to get the water out. It comes out on its own. Now I think again, Isaac could have contested the well. He said, my men dug this well. I have permission to be here. Therefore, you leave me alone. And if you don't, we're going to have a knockdown, drag-out fight here. But Isaac chooses not to contest even this well. As special as it was, he chooses not to contest it. Now, what does this... What do we discover here about the nature of this man? Is Isaac, by nature, by his own personality, is he a man of peace? Or is he simply consciously rec uh, recognizing the fact that he can't represent God and alienate his neighbors? In other words, is he normally just by nature a man of peace? Or is he consciously thinking about this whole situation and recognizing that uh, uh, if he gets involved in a clash here, he's not going to be able to be uh, an example of God to these, to these people? Or is he a coward, you know, some might even want to throw that particular uh, concept uh, in here. He knew, I'm sure, that if he fought for the well and won, he would actually lose in the long run because he was a sojourner. This was not his land. And if he were to fight and win, he would literally alienate his neighbors, make enemies out of all of those around him. You all remember, of course, later on in the days of Jacob when uh, they came to into the land and uh, Shechem up in the north part of the uh, land of Israel at Shechem. Uh, the, one of uh, Jacob's daughters was raped by the king there, but then he wanted to marry her, the son of the king actually. And uh, two of uh, Jacob's sons made an agreement and in the process, he, those two sons murdered the male population of the city. And Jacob said, you have made me stink in the nostrils of all the people who live in this particular area. Yes, they had victory over their enemies, but they had made enemies out of all of the other people around. And so it seems that Isaac sensed this. Yes, I could fight. I could probably win control of this well. I could keep it. But in so doing, I'm going to alienate the Philistines and there will be no possibility of friendship with them. I think we'll discover, uh, can discover from this passage here, that Isaac himself was a true peacemaker. 
This was his character. This was his desire. This was the kind of a person that he was. He wanted there to be peace, and he was willing to do whatever it took to make peace. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You and I live in a day, in an age, and in a society where the emphasis is stand up for your rights. Don't let anybody step on your rights. Well, that's just a natural way we are as people, most of us at least. Uh, somebody steps on our rights and we have this mm, kind of reaction. You know, We want to defend ourselves. Maybe not everybody's that way, but many of us are. Especially the male side tends to be maybe more so than the female side. <laughs> Just get in that space between me and the next car. Just try it, you know. <laughs> that's, that's kind of a natural tendency that we have, this defending our rights type thing. But, you know, the New Testament teaches us very, very different principles than that. And as you read through the whole of Scripture, actually, uh, the Bible doesn't teach us to become doormats that we could just lie down and let everybody wipe their feet on us. But the Bible teaches us to be meek. And uh, meekness involves peacemaking. And uh, meekness is not uh, the doormat deal. Uh, meekness is strength under control. Power uh, reigned in. And, of course, that's what Jesus was as he walked this planet the meekest man who ever walked the planet, and he had all the power in the universe at his control. Let me uh, turn to a couple of New Testament passages which particularly emphasize this uh, role of pursuing peace. In Hebrews chapter 12, the scripture says, pursue peace. Now, interesting when you think about that, it doesn't just say, be peaceful, or if an opportunity comes around, take the, the peaceful route. It says pursue it. That means seek it. That means be an active uh, producer of peace. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Isaac probably wasn't sure of all of these principles expressed here, but he had this sense within him that if he didn't pursue peace, there would be a very strong root of bitterness. The Philistines would harbor this hatred for him either way. If he were to win, they would harbor this hatred. If, they were to if he were to lose, they would not only harbor a hatred, but they would consider themselves better than he and, and really, you know, trounce on him. And so it was kind of a lose-lose situation if he chose the, the course of defense or of action, of, uh, of holding those wells at all costs. So he chose the route of peace. He pursued peace so that there would not be a root of bitterness between him and the Philistines, at least from his perspective. Now that's important because if we turn to the Romans passage that's on your outline there, Romans 12, you see another aspect of this here. Romans 12, where the scripture tells us to bless those who persecute us. Not only don't punch their lights out, bless them. Now that is not human nature. Verse 14 of Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now, if we're really honest with ourselves, is it not true that when somebody crosses us suddenly and, and strongly, our natural inclination is not to say, bless you, <laughs> but to kick him in the shins or, you know, something worse. That's our natural inclination. And, of course, that's what we fight. And that's what the purpose of the Holy Spirit indwelling us is, to make us more like Christ and to pursue peace in these situations. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, 
but associate with the lowly. That's why we gather here together, isn't it? Do not be wise in your own estimation. <laughs> Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Whoa, that's a strong one, isn't it? Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, upon me, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But we say, but Lord, you take too long. <laughs> we want to see it. We don't want to just know it will happen one day. We want to see it now. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Notice where that little verse is affixed. It's not affixed in some passage about some major temptation, you know, to, to crime or a life of lust. It's affixed at the end of a verse of a passage which teaches us to do good to our enemies, which teaches us to leave room for the wrath of God. In other words, for us to seek vengeance, for us to repay, for us to rather than feed our hungry enemy to make sure that he doesn't get any food is to be overcome by evil. But for us to do the things which are admonished in this passage is to overcome evil with good. And this was the kind of character Isaac was. He was a peacemaker. And he blessed the Philistines in that he did not contest the well, although he had the power to do so. We have to remember Isaac was not a wimp. He wasn't a guy with just three helpers here who had no ch chance. I mean, he had probably, he probably could have fielded a force of a thousand men. And it's very probable that Abimelech could not because the city-state of Gerar was very small. And it's possible he could have overcome. When you think about the fact that later on, Jacob's two sons, Simeon and uh, Levi, will wipe out the male population of a city single-handedly, just those two guys. You have to realize how small some of these towns were. They were not particularly large. Our tendency, uh, maybe I shouldn't say our, at least my tendency, and I, I, have a, I have a sneaking suspicion for many of us here, it's true. Our tendency is to be like James and John, the disciples, whom Jesus called the sons of thunder. Remember when the Samaritans would not accept them? They said to Jesus, send down fire from heaven and burn them up. <laughs> I mean, after all, they're not listening to us. They don't want us to come here. Fry him, Lord. <laughs> and Jesus said, you guys are the sons of thunder. That is a natural tendency that we have within us. That seems right. But the scripture says that there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. Sometimes when we look at the way that God admonishes us to live, we think, but that seems weak. You know, it seems like, you know, that, that you're just rolling over and, and, and being literally a doormat. But we have to remember that we are the children of the king. We are princes and princesses. And therefore, uh, we're not worms. Uh, we don't have to say, well, that's what I deserve because I'm no good anyway. It's because we know the king. And these people do not. And there's got to be some hope for them somehow. And it's really hard sometimes. I know I find it hard in myself to always remember that person did that not because he knows me or is doing that purposely to hurt me. It's just because that's his nature. He's, he's, a, he's a child of the enemy. He's a follower of Satan. He doesn't know any better. And to always remember this is a spiritual warfare. It's really the enemy who's behind this. And it's the enemy we're to resist, not the person. And that's hard for us to remember, but Isaac, I think, is a little bit of an Old Testament example of this. However much he thought along these terms, this is what God was putting in his spirit.
We are supposed to be ambassadors of the Prince of Peace. And as a result, we should strive to be peacemakers. We should avoid strife wherever possible, especially within the church. Unfortunately, the Bride of Christ, as the collective Christian community of the world, has really not learned that very well. And there's an awful lot of strife within the church, which is really sad. It ought not to be there. I don't mean just within the individual church, but within the church worldwide. And that's not the way God would have it to be. We must do all that we can to avoid a well of Essek, a well of contention. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be willing to go to the point of compromising our faith, obviously. We have to stand for what we believe, and if that produces contention, then there's not a thing further we can do about it. You know, the Scripture teaches us that as far as it lies within us, be at peace with all men. And when Paul was saying that, he knew that there would be people in this world who would reject all peace overtures. And as we look at our community today, our society today, you and I know that there are elements within our society that will not accept peace short of total victory for their particular position. They will accept not one step less. They will not compromise at any point to have peace. They will go to the fullest extreme to have their total way. Well, what can we as Christians do? Go as far as it is within us to have peace, but sometimes peace will not come. Isaac's herdsmen moved. Now, can you just put yourself in the position of some of these herdsmen? We dug this well. We sweated to get this water. And now Isaac's just saying, leave it and let's go over there and, and just let these Philistine herdsmen have it for free. I'm sure that within them there was a lot of grumbling because not every one of them was a peacemaker. <laughs> not every one of them had the mind of God in them as Isaac did in this particular situation. So they did move, though, because Isaac told them to move. And they dug another well. And the Philistines followed along and said, we want this one too. They quarreled for this well. And Isaac called it sitna, meaning hostility. A well of contention over here and a well of hostility over there. Does that sound like your life sometimes? <laughs> you know, you go from the well of contention to the well of hostility. Well, we live in a world which is hostile to who we are and to what we stand for and who, for whom we stand. And so it's what we should expect. It's to be expected that we're going to have contention and hostility. We are to be as much as possible peacemakers. But there still will be hostility. He could have fought. He had the strength to do so. And did he think about it again? I think so. He probably thought, hmm... I let the last one go, but how many times am I going to be pushed here? Well, at what point do I stand up and say, thus far and no more? But he kept thinking to himself, I'm sure, if I fight, there's no hope for friendship with these people. And I think friendship's important, and therefore I will not fight. So he again moved, and I can just believe that the well diggers grumbled even louder. Oh, this Isaac, is he gone mad? We're going to have to dig another well. Now, well digging, I can't suppose, was a particularly enjoyable task. You know, didn't have a big machine with a drill bit, you know, down the ground. You had to go out there with your shovels and uh, pick and whatever you had and just beat a hole in the ground. And it was uh, not an easy thing to do. But God rewarded Isaac because he now dug another well and the scripture tells us the Philistines did not contest it. And so what does Isaac do? He gives it another name, a better name. This is Rehoboth, the enlarged place, meaning room enough for all. I finally got to the place where they'll let me have this well without fighting me for it, meaning obviously we're at a, a point of uh, mutual agreement and it's acceptable to them. And, and I think... 
Isaac was satisfied within his spirit that he had done the right thing. He now has the water. He now can uh, take care of his family and his crops. And he has not caused friction with the Philistines. Do you suspect, maybe, that Isaac complained a little to God, though? When, the herds, when his herdsmen said, how come you keep moving and we have to keep digging new wells? <laughs> Did he just pass it off and not think another thought about it? Is it possible that he went to God and said, why is this happening to me, Lord? <laughs> I'm trying to be obedient. I've listened to your voice. I've done what you said. I didn't go to Egypt. I've stayed in the land. Why is this happening to me? <laughs> sort of like Job, you know. I think so. It's hard to imagine him not. And I think that God's response wasn't with these words, certainly, but was with this same concept as we read in James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There is a great reward for staying the course, for doing what God asks us to do in spite of the resistance, in spite of the difficulty, in spite of the hostility. We stick the course. There is an ultimate reward. And that reward is often both in this life as well as the next, certainly in the next, but often it is in this life. Blessed is the man, the person, who perseveres under trial. It doesn't say, blessed is the person who perseveres while everything is hunky-dory. You know, smooth sailing. It's pretty easy to be happy-go-lucky and, and whistle, a, whistle a tune when you're on the deck of a ship that has a fair weather, a fair wind blowing behind, you know, and the sea is, is, is smooth and the sun is setting and dying in the west, you know, and all the kinds of nice things you think of. It's not uh, particularly difficult to... Uh, have a right attitude in that situation. But when the storm is blowing and your ship seems like it's about to capsize and you're still saying, well, praise the Lord. You know, that's, that's the one who's blessed under, who perseveres under trial. Have we failed? I think every one of us in here can admit to failure in situations like that. Just as the disciples said to Jesus as he was sleeping in the boat, and the waves were coming into the boat. <laughs> and they went back there and said, Jesus, don't you care if we die? I, I never point my finger at those disciples and say, what is wrong with those guys? Because I know I have done the same thing. And in the same situation, probably would have done the same thing. That's one of the things that's so helpful about studying the Old Testament. You know, sometimes we can really rag on the children of Israel, but we shouldn't. <laughs> because we keep seeing ourselves, at least I see myself, reflected there. God blesses, and the next minute you're complaining about something, you know. And, but God is patient, and hopefully we learn as we stay the course. Verse 23 of Genesis 26. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. <laughs> they probably put in for hazardous duty pay or something here, you know. <laughs> uh, digging wells after wells, well after well. The drought possibly came to an end here, and so he moved back towards the southeast uh, and stopped at Beersheba. He moved his whole household, the whole encampment, uprooted, left the well of Rehoboth, and moved back towards Kadesh Barnea and stopped at uh, Beersheba. Now, as best as we're able to tell from the approximate supposed location of the well of Rehoboth to Beersheba, he probably only had to travel about one day's journey, 15 miles or so, 
probably less than 15 miles. Traveling to the southwest across the, the uh, steppe of Beersheba, the, uh, the valley there, the, the relatively flat land of the Negev. The very first night when he arrives in Beersheba, God comes to him, appears to him, speaks to him. This is the second time. Remember back in the first part of the chapter, God appeared to him the first time uh, there at Gerar. Uh, the first time God had specifically appeared to Isaac that we have record of in Scripture. But now God appears to him a second time. Now, we're probably talking about a not, not a very large time frame here between the two appearances. But he has acted in obedience to God. He has been the peacemaker that God wanted him to be. Therefore, God comes to him again. Why? I think he came, as the passage indicates, to reaffirm all of the promises that he had made. Do we ever need reaffirmation? <laughs> Seems like every day we do. Sometimes, I mean, why do we have this book, the Bible? I mean, it's not only to teach us and to give us insight and to convict us of sin, but it's to give reaffirmation, to reaffirm our faith, to reaffirm the fact that God is pleased with us and, and working with us. And of course, many of us turn to the book of Psalms. You know, we're having some problem, and so we turn to Psalms to try to find some what? Some reaffirmation that we're doing what's right, that God is with us in the midst of whatever our problem happens to be. Isaac didn't have any written scripture. There was no written scripture for him to have. We've got to keep remembering that. I mean, Moses was the man God used to write the Pentateuch. And Moses isn't going to come along for another 400 years or more, 500 years. So here is Isaac with no written scripture. So how does he get reaffirmation? God comes to him in apparently visible form, certainly in audible form, and ministers to him to strengthen his faith and to confirm his sense of purpose. Now, the message here is very brief, as we read it there in the 24th verse. It's very, very brief, but it's a powerful, powerful message. I'm reminded of uh, the, you know, historically, in the days of classical Greece and before, the uh, men, uh, the people who lived in the great city-state of Sparta were, were known for their uh, terse speech, their laconic speech. And that's part, the, the term laconic, which means, uh, you know, sort of like Calvin Coolidge was, you know. <laughs> Just a short little phrase, he said all he needed to say, not, not a loquacious person comes from the fact, of course, that Sparta was in control of the state of Laconia. So they were Laconians, and of course we get the word laconic from that. God is in many ways very laconic. God can say an awful lot in, in a very few words. Now we might say, well, he wrote a whole book and look at all the pages in it. I don't know that I find the scripture to be too voluminous for me. It's you know, it's, it's all it needs to be. Uh, God has put so much wisdom in such concise um, form here for us. And so he is very concise here with Isaac. He says, I am the Elohim. First thing he says, who is this? This is Yahweh. This is the God of his father Abraham who is coming to him and saying, I am the Elohim, which means the Godhead, the triune God. Now, the concept of the Trinity was not well understood, of course, by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they knew that in God was a plurality because he is referred to in this plural form, Elohim, which means gods, literally. And... Uh, we understand it, of course, as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coming to minister here to Isaac. Now, Isaac well knew 
the power and the authority of this God who had called his father out of Ur of the Chaldees and had led him all the way into Canaan. And he knew the dedication of his father to this God, Yahweh. He knew how great was that dedication because he was the very focal point of the primary test that Abraham experienced there on the top of Mount Moriah. I mean, it was Isaac who was lying there about ready to have his throat cut to become a sacrifice. If that wouldn't make a point on that young man's mind, he was dull of thought. And so he remembers very well how much his father was committed to this God. And as a result, he himself was committed. And so as he hears the words, I am the Elohim of your father Abraham, he hears then God say four declarations that are so important. And they are the very declarations that God says to us over and over again in Scripture. Do not fear. What more comfort could a person desire than to hear the voice of the Almighty God saying, Do not fear. With all the sources around for us to have fear, the one who controls them all, who, when he says, Do not fear them, that ought to be great comfort to us all. Be at peace. Shalom, if you will. Let nothing frighten you. And of course, what God is saying is twofold here. He's saying, first of all, do not be afraid of my appearance here. The fact that the Almighty One has come to you, don't, don't be afraid. Now, you know, the Scripture says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But the thrust there is not the fear in the knee-knocking sense that you're afraid that this God's going to wipe you out or something. It, it simply means stand in awe of the Holy One. God is here not saying, don't fear me, in that sense. He's saying, don't have this you know, uncontrollable, nonsensical fear. But, of course, stand in awe. And he's also saying, don't be afraid concerning the events which are yet to transpire. The things that are going to happen in life that you don't know about, don't fear those either. Why not? Well, because he says, I am with you. I am with you. Now, when you think about that, can you think of a more profound concept in all of Scripture than for the creator of the universe to say to you and to me, I am with you. I am in your life, and I will walk with you wherever you walk, and I will be with you in whatever situation you face. This was the promise God was making to Isaac. Why be afraid? <laughs> The mighty God of the universe is with you. God would always be with him. Now, he knew a great deal about Yahweh because, of course, of his own personal experience and the teaching of his father, Abraham. But he was learning on his own, and that's part of the reason that God came to him here to reaffirm what he had heard before and had some experience with, but to make it real to him. I am with you, Isaac. Not just because you're the son of Abraham, but because you are my chosen one. I am with you. This was the God who had destroyed Sodom in a moment of time. This was the God who was revealed in the Melchizedek incident as El Elyon. God Most High, who had delivered... Abraham, into Abraham's hand, the mighty Mesopotamian army to this little group of, of Bedouin raiders. This was the God who had brought about Isaac's own miraculous conception. Not too many people could walk around and say, I was born to a woman who was 90 years old. So this man knew something of who this God was. And this very God was promising to go along with him to be his guide, his comfort, and his help in every situation. And this is the same promise God has made to us. 
And the Old and New Testament, is they're both full of this truth. I am with you and you and you and you. As my children, I am with you. Here, there, everywhere, I am with you. Now, this had to be a profound concept to Isaac. In the final words of, of Matthew, you remember Jesus said, basically to go into all the world, and he said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. In John 15 and in John 16, Jesus said, I have to go away from you, because if I don't go away, I cannot send the parakletos, which we know to be the Holy Spirit. I have to go so the parakletos can come and be with you. And parakletos means the one who comes alongside, who walks right here next to you, in effect with his arm around you in every situation. The one who is there at all times. So God, Yahweh, was saying to Isaac that he would be with him in much the same way as we know the Scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit is with us today. Then God says, I will bless you. Can you think of a greater promise or a greater inheritance for than for God to say, I will bless you? You know, somebody can say to you, <laughs> as we've had happen to us, you know, somebody gets kind of irrational at some point in time and say, says, oh, you know, you've been such a help to me, I'm going to write you into my will. Well, I think, yeah, sure. <laughs> and, you know, not that I'm not believing in somebody's words, but, you know, it doesn't happen. But when God says, I will bless you, you know <laughs> you have got the most wonderful thing that could be possible in this life. Isaac knew, of course, what it meant to be blessed in the physical realm. He had been greatly blessed as his father had been. He, well, you know, as you go back, let me just read these verses again. Uh, back in verse 12 of this same chapter, he sowed the land and he reaped a hundredfold and the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy for he had possessions of flocks and herds and great household. So the Philistines envied him. I mean, this man was mightily blessed in the physical realm. Now, you and I might not feel particularly blessed if we had a backyard full of goats or something like that. But in that society, in that day, to have vast herds was to be, that was the greatest source of wealth for a nomad especially. But the implication here is that the blessing is more than material. Included, of course, in the blessing was the fact that Isaac had become the carrier of the covenant. That the covenant that God had made with Abraham, God had now made it with Isaac. So he was the one who would carry the covenant on to his son Jacob. But not only that, he would be the continuer of the search for the city that has foundations and whose builder and maker is God. Whatever he understood by that. Whatever Isaac understood about uh, God, about eternity, about life after death, we don't know how much he understood. But he knew that he was the one who was continuing on in the direction that God had set for him and for his father and for his descendants. And as was true of Abraham, the scripture teaches us that Isaac obeyed. He believed and he obeyed. And the scripture implies, therefore, that God imputed righteousness to him just as God had done to Abraham. As a righteous person, therefore, the greatest possible blessing that he could receive is, of course, the blessing of life eternal. And that is the blessing that is our greatest blessing also. Let me just read a few verses that are well known to us from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That has got to be one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. You and I were chosen to be in Christ before God even created this universe. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us according to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. The spiritual blessings that God has promised to us are, of course, primarily in the heavenly places. And we will experience them as a reality primarily when we pass through Chile Jordan or the Pearly Gates or whatever uh, you know, uh, concept you want to use there. But the knowledge of that is a blessing. In one of the recent, I don't know if you ever read the Daily Bread, but one of the recent ones, uh, the author was pointing out the fact that the older we get, there is a tendency to be more looking forward to the time when we go into God's presence. And that's not just because our body is aging, it's because hopefully we're walking closer and closer with Him every day, and as such, we want to be more and more in His very presence. And, and that is the ultimate blessing. And a measure of that blessing spills over into this life because we know that that is there for us. And that's why it makes it so hard. I'm sure you've had these same thoughts. You read through the paper and you read what's going on in the world today and you wonder, why do people do these things? What possible joy can they get out of money that they've gotten in, in, in some violent means? I mean, how can you enjoy money that you've gotten that way? You know, what fun is there in even having it? And to realize those people have no hope. They do not have heaven to look forward to. The best they have to hope forward for is that they will be obliterated at the moment of their death. That they will just be gone. You know, many people today are pursuing New Age concepts because they like the idea that's profound in the midst of, of Buddhism and Hinduism that as you die, you just kind of become a drop into the great sea of the universe, of the universe and you just kind of merge into the universal whole. It doesn't sound exciting to me. But if you've lived a life of ho a hopeless life and you've lived a life in which you know that you're guilty, that is something to look forward to, you know, if that could be a reality. Because then you will not be responsible to anybody for what you've done. And there is no, quote, punishment for, for what has taken place here. But for us, we have this knowledge of eternal life. We don't really know what all it's going to involve, but we know it's going to be a great blessing. And so this is Isaac's greatest blessing, too. You know, he doesn't have the whole scripture here to, to explain to him what heaven's going to be like and all of this, but he has this sense that God is his God and that this life is not all there is to it. And that as he walks in obedience, he will be drawn into the heavenly realms to be with God Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with Christ. It's a wondrous thought. Sometimes we're tempted to take it for granted. Well, I'm going to go to heaven, so I can just go ahead and, you know, cut my own rut through here and live like I want to uh, because I'm going to get, you know, I've taken care of the afterlife. I've got my fire insurance, so I don't have to worry about, you know, that's... That's a temptation for some, maybe for all of us. But uh, it's not to take for granted. It's to stand in awe of the reality of that. Abraham and Isaac were, of course, greatly blessed in the material realm. And there are some people who are tempted to think that blessing in the material realm is the primary blessing of God. 
Some take the passage in, in Philippians where it says, My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus as meaning only material. Well, it does include the material, but it's far beyond that. I mean, God looks down at us and God knows all the wondrous things that are here for us and will be there for us. And, and he knows that the material things are such a little bitty sliver of all of this. And yet that's the sliver that takes up so much of our thought and our desire. And when he says, I'm going to supply all of your needs, he is thinking in the big picture. The Ephesians passage is part of this. And, and we need to be reminded, I guess, often, and we won't turn to it again, I have it on the outline there, but we all, we, we read a little part of this, I think it was last week or the week before, but when, when, we, when we're tempted to think that way, all we have to do is turn to the Sermon on the Mount and read in Matthew uh, 6, uh, where, you know, Jesus says, Do not lay up your treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, but put them in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness and all these things, which in does include material things, will be added unto you. And, and we have to really be careful because there are some teachers today running around in America that, in effect, teaching that it's really, really important that the blessing of God be seen in you and that you have great wealth. Well, Jesus says don't seek those things. Seek the kingdom of God. And he'll give you what you need because, you know, you read down through there and he says, you know, why worry about clothes? I'll supply what you need. Don't worry about what you need to eat. I'll supply what you need. After all, I feed the birds. And Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like the simple little flower of the field. So what do we worry about? I will bless you. Who will bless you? God of the universe. Isaac is learning a truth here that we need to learn and to walk by. Well, there's one more statement, and uh, we don't really have time, but we'll pick up the multiply your descendants one. Some of us might not consider that necessarily to be a blessing. But <laughs> in uh, Isaac's case, this was considered to be a great blessing. And then we'll look at his response. Because Isaac's response to God is fourfold also. And it's very interesting as we look at that.